We come today to what is unquestionably one of the most popular, well-known passages in the book of Micah. It's, it's read virtually every Christmas season in every Christian church. Uh, in fact, I thought of titling this sermon, O Little Town of Bethlehem, but I didn't want to trigger any of the people here for whom Christmas needs to stay completely contained within its box. So... Anyway, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Micah chapter 5 as we read from verse 1 through the end of verse 5a. See how that works? 5a. We'll read the first clause or sentence of verse 5. All right, here's what the prophet tells us. Remember, every word of prophecy has its origination in the mind of God and comes to the prophet by means of the Holy Spirit. These are the inerrant, the inspired words of God. Every word that the prophet writes down is precisely the word that the Holy Spirit wants. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage, for the hope that it brings, for the comfort and encouragement that it gives. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would be faithful to understand and to live in light of these words. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, unless, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that just a few days ago, uh, Queen Elizabeth II of England died. And by all accounts, she was a sincere believer. In fact, one of, of, of the many wonderful stories shared about her, quotes and anecdotes shared about her, my personal favorite, well, I'm sorry, I have two. One is when she was just a mere princess, uh, and she didn't leave London during the bombing of, 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 in World War II, and she rallied and encouraged her people by her physical presence there in the midst of, of dis utter destruction. That's inspiring. And, but my, my, my favorite quote or anecdote of, from her is uh, she, she was telling her chaplain that she really, really wished that Jesus would come back while she was still alive. Why? because I would so love to lay my crown at, her feet, at his feet. Now, 
Sadly, most rulers on the earth don't have that mentality, but she did. And, and, and it's apropos to think in terms of the fact that she, she, has lived, she lived a long life, and, and because we have, by all, all, uh, all uh, accounts, she's a bona fide believer, we can have confidence that she is in the presence of, of our Lord, and her nation mourns. And they're going to have many days of mourning, and, and there's been a new king, and, and it's a reminder to us that in the human experience, people and their king, their ruler, have a special relationship. Uh, in most places, in most times, the, the king, the ruler, is understood to be, in, in one sense, the very embodiment of the essence of the people. They are to embody and personify the traits that are admirable in that kingdom, in that culture. And they are to live their lives in service to and in promotion of that people. And the people then respond by living their lives in loyal obedience to that king. A king is not just a political decision maker. A king is a veritable symbol of stability, security, and strength. So we come to this passage, which promises a ruler, a king, to be born in the most unlikely of places. This passage, make no mistake, was clearly, is clearly messianic in nature. The Jews under, to this day understand this to be messianic in nature. The Jews of Jesus' day understood this to be messianic in nature. Think back to Matthew chapter 2. The wise men come. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We want to worship him. And this greatly troubles Herod, right? And so he assembles all the religious leaders, all the Bible scholars, and he says to them, where is the Messiah to be born? And, and they don't have to return to their books. They don't have to go and study this. They, they just tell them. Bethlehem, for it says in the prophet, and then they quote back to Herod the words of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So everybody has understood this passage to be messianic. It points to a, from the vantage point of the speaker, it points to a future time in which a future ruler will deliver save and exalt the people, which is a far cry from the present reality they were experiencing. This passage continues the theme of reversal that we have seen all the way since chapter 3. In this case, it's a reversal of the fortunes of the ruler. And remember, the ruler is the personification of the people in mass. The ruler, the king, is the symbol of strength, of stability, of security for the people. And right now, the picture in Jerusalem was bleak. When you see verse 1 here, you kind of scratch your head. Muster your troops. O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. What's he talking about? Well, 
he's probably talking, most scholars are agreed that he's probably talking about the utter humiliation, the degraded contempt that was cast upon Hezekiah by the fact that the armies of Assyria had come. And this whole event is recorded in 2 Kings 18. You can, you can read about it. But in 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah rebels against Assyria because he, his kingdom was reduced to a vassal state. And Hezekiah decides to rebel. And, and he appears to be getting ready to, to pay off and, and, and make atonement for having rebelled. But the king of Assyria decides, I'm not going to take your money. I'm taking you. And he sends his army, and they encamp around, and the situation is absolutely dire. The Assyrians take most of the country except for the capital city. And they've killed and deported people from all over the countryside. And then, to make it worse, they send their spokesman, the, the officer's name or the officer's position or title is the Rabsakah, but it's, it's just a title of leadership. He's the spokesman. And he comes forward and he taunts Hezekiah and his people. I will give you 2,000 horses if you could put people on them. That's, that's the taunting that Micah's making reference to here. Muster your forces, O daughter of troops. There's, there's no forces to muster. And the enemies of God's people are taunting and degrading, insulting. And so with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. They've degraded Hezekiah to the point that they're not even really referencing him, him as a king, merely as the ruler. And they're insulting him. They're insulting the people by virtue of insulting him. And there's nothing, nothing Hezekiah can do about it. So as we've seen throughout this sequence of passages with this concept of reversal, the present looks grim, the present looks bleak. And so now we've reached the point where the very forces of evil are gathered around. They have encircled, they have set up their siege works, the, the, end, the end is in sight, and it doesn't look pretty. They've received the terminal diagnosis and the doctors have said, there's nothing else we can do. It looks absolutely hopeless. But then verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you will come. And so, once again, we see the tendency of our Lord to take that which is esteemed not and to make it the source of hope and salvation for his people. This town, Bethlehem, uh, when we say it's so small that it's too little to be among the clans of Judah, it's referencing back to antiquity. Back to when the promised land was conquered and divided up and disseminated to the people in, in Joshua chapter 15. And in Joshua chapter 15, they list out 115 towns in Judah. And Bethlehem is so small, 
so inconsequential that it doesn't make the list. But the Lord, the Lord knows of Bethlehem. Indeed, in 1 Samuel 16, after after having rejected the, the king who was the kind of king the people wanted, the Lord tells Samuel, quit moping around feeling bad that I've rejected Saul. I've picked out someone else. Someone, someone who is going to have a heart like mine. And he says, I want you to go to where? To Bethlehem. To the house of Jesse the Benjamite. All right? And so from there, King David comes. And so there's a definite royal lineage in the past. But remember the people of Israel had largely forgotten their glorious past. And Bethlehem had once again returned to being nothing but a backwater, hick town, so small that in modern day towns, it might barely have a flashing yellow light in the center of town. Nothing was there. But then we hear this. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And what the Lord does here through the prophet is he's simultaneously saying two things. His coming forth is from of old. Now, you, you, you could understand this to mean that he's saying that the coming forth of this future king is, is in keeping with words that I've said long ago. For example, by the time of Hezekiah, they're several hundred years removed from God's famous words to David in 2 Samuel 7, in which we have the so-called Davidic covenant made, where God promises that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne forever, and, and David himself understands the implications in his response when he understands that this is for all people. He understands the messianic implications. But the promise of a ruler goes back even further. It goes all the way back over a thousand years back to the land of Egypt when an old dying Jacob on his deathbed pronounces blessing and prophesies for each of his sons. And he tells Judah that the throne shall not depart until it brings forth the obedience of all peoples. So we, we could say this coming forth of this is in line with this promise that's gone back a long time. And that's one thing that the Lord is reminding us of, that he's keeping his promise that he's made. But this actually goes a bit deeper. You see, you see that, that phrase where it says, uh, his coming forth from of old, from ancient days? That Hebrew phrase, that Hebrew construction is used in, in Psalm 90, verse 2, for instance, to say, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you 
our God. That same form, that same phrase that's used here again in, in, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, from of old, from ancient days, it's translated in Deuteronomy 33, 27, the eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. So while on the one hand, these words in verse 2 are reminding the people that there's a promise that's been, that's been given, and this is keeping in line with that trajectory, nonetheless, these words go very, very much deeper. It speaks to the fact of eternality. That this one who is coming forth is of eternal quality. And that his coming forth, the, the coming forthness of this whole thing, is from eternity. Now, pause here for just a moment and think about the implications for what it's saying. He's not just saying that the one who's coming forth is eternal, though he is, pointing to divinity. He's reminding them that, that the coming forthness of this is from eternity. What does that mean? It means that the present misery therein the present terror they're experiencing, the absolute fear that has engulfed their hearts and the despair that has gripped their spirits as they've seen their world dismantled by a hostile satanic power, that this whole mess, this whole trajectory of mess that issues forth the need for that eternal one to come, and his coming is from eternity, so too then is this. In other words, in the now, understand this is all part of the plan. Your now, O child of Israel, is all part of the plan. This is really, really important because there are some who think that what God was offering the nation of ethnic Jews, the nation of Israel, was a bona fide kingdom on the earth, but they messed it up. Oh, man. So now God's going to come up with plan B. Oh, I guess I'll just save the world. And what the prophet is saying is this whole thing it's from eternity, which is what we learn in Scripture, is it not? That this decree and unchangeable purpose of God has been set from eternity, and it has now been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we learn in Scripture. One plan, one purpose. But these words to the people inspired hope that this circumstance really has not caught God unawares. It has really not caught God by surprise. This is all part of the plan. Have you ever considered the most miserable, think for just a minute of what is the worst day you have ever had? What is it? Backstabbed by a friend? The loss of a loved one? The, 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 the giving of a, of a terrible diet. What, what, what is the worst day? 
that is part of God's plan for you. His perfect plan to glorify his name and prove himself supremely satisfying to you. And so, I love Fiddler on the Roof. And Tevia wonders what we all wonder. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I was a wealthy man? Okay, remember that? And we question God's providence and God's plan for our lives. But, but understand the all-wise one has from eternity perfectly organized and perfectly orchestrated his purposes to save his people and exalt his son. So there's security. But it's not just that. We read in verse 3 that it's not just the days up to now that are part of God's plan. It's all the days yet to come that are part of God's plan. I don't know what God has in store for you tomorrow. I don't know. Bad news can strike. I don't know. I mean, I've been on more than one death notification with the military, and, and they do a really, really, really good job of that. And, and I'm telling you, parents, wives, siblings, they're just living their life. They're having a day. They're just mowing their lawn. They're just watching TV. They're just, they're just doing something. And then all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door, and we're there. Bad stuff happens all the time. I don't know if your children are going to abandon the faith that you so diligently try to uh, instill in them. I don't know what all your tomorrows look like. But you know what? He does. And that's the point of verse 3. He will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now historically, the giving birth part we know is the coming of Christ. And, the, and brothers and sisters, you got to realize that's, that's like 600 years after this. 600 years of, of, of a whole lot of badness going on. And as we await the consummation of all things, we experience in similar manner all manner of bad things in this life. But what do we read in Galatians? When the fullness of time had come, and that's the Greek construction that's typically used to depict giving birth. Now, I think that under the superintending guidance of the Holy Spirit, that, that construction is used to allude back to the fact that the metaphor of childbirth is used here in Micah chapter 5, verse 3. But when the fullness of time had come, in other words, when all that bad stuff had happened when all the when all the players on the on the chessboard were properly in place God sent forth his son to redeem us that we might receive adoption 
And as we await the consummation of all things and we wonder, how long, O Lord? Is that not the cry we hear repeated in Revelation? How long? And they're told to wait a little longer until the full number of those to be slain was met. But we can look back on the first advent. And as we say at every communion service we have here, as we consider his faithfulness to come at his first advent, we can have confidence that he indeed will surely come again. And so, all the bad things you've had experienced, all the stuff that may come down the pike, it is a part of God's perfect and intricately detailed plan for you. And he wants you to rest in the sovereign shepherding of his son, our Savior. But then he says this in verse 3. After, after he comes, then, the then is, the, the way he pieces together verse 3 and 4 uh, what you get to see here is the fact that he's looking through a glass dimly. And he sees things from different vantage points. And he, and he can't quite see the spatial distance between them. That's very common with prophets. He sees the Lord's coming. And then he sees a process that is ongoing even now. He doesn't see just a one-time momentary thing. He's seeing a process. He says... Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And there's, and there's a very short-sighted view that says that what this is talking about is the fact that ever since the, 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 the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians... Uh, the majority of the world's ethnic Jews have lived outside Israel, which is true. Did you know that? That even in the first century, most Jews lived outside of Israel. That's why Pentecost was such a big deal. They, they made their, their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Well, anyway, it, there's some who think that what this is saying is that he will come and then all his brothers, that is, his fellow Jews, will return to Israel but I want you to understand that that is remarkably short-sighted because it does not account for the wondrous breadth that the New Testament gives to this topic. You see, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that when it says the rest of his brothers shall return, you know who he's talking about or who's including in that? You. And me, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Why do I think so? Okay, well, Jesus means Yahweh saves. It's, it, it, Jesus is Joshua. And it means Yahweh saves, or salvation is of the Lord. And in Matthew 1.21, when the angel comes to Joseph, and he tells Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus. It's one of the few times in the Bible when, when the Lord instructs beforehand what the name will be. And he says, you will name him Jesus. 
Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And so, later on in Jesus' life, we talked about John 10 last week, but in John 10, 16, he specifically says, I have sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And, and that's tying together then what Paul is talking about in Romans 11. In Romans 11, he talks about this partial hardening that's taken place with the ethnic Jews and the, that the Gentiles might come in. But, but then it says, he says this in 11.25. I, I don't want you to be aware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, we learned that Paul uses the Israel of God as a label, as a, as a designator for what? For the church. And so what Paul says in 11.25 is that, and in this way, so right now there's been a partial hardening here and a, and a, and a softening here that these full number may come in and then, and then I will release the hardening. And, that, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. This one people that the Lord talks about in John 10, this one vine that Paul has just talked about in Romans 10. But then the Lord goes even further than talking about saving a people. In Hebrews 2.11, for he who sanctifies, that is Jesus, he's the one who makes us holy, and those who are sanctified, that is all of us, those of us who are being made holy, all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, all of us being saved, brothers. And then in Romans 8, 29, we love Romans 8, 28, and 29. But Romans 8, 29, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be what? The firstborn among many brothers. And so, there's one people the Lord came to save. That is to say, his people. All those who were foreknown and loved and predestined by the Father from eternity past, this group was presented to the Son in eternity past, and the Son said, yes, I will be their mediator. I accept. And so in the fullness of time, Jesus came forth, and he redeemed with his very life all of us. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so, brothers and sisters, when the people of Micah's day would have heard this from verse 3, 
they would have been astounded. They would have been astounded, first of all, that this town they had forgotten about is still on the map in God's mind. They would have been astounded that there's going to be a tomorrow because it looks like there might not be an end of the day. They're going to be, they're astounded that this universal ruler is going to come, but then he's called their brother. So their very estate in life has just been elevated. They aren't just commoners. If you're a brother of the king, then you're royalty, right? It's astounding. And the king then is going to shepherd them and rule over them in the strength and in the majesty of the Lord and they will be secure and he will be their peace. Indeed, we experience a bit of this in this life right now. Oh, how many legions of Christ followers How when they come to the great shepherd, the great overseer of their souls, they are relieved of their burden of guilt, of shame, of sin, their fear of death and dying, their fear of the unknown tomorrow melts away and they have bliss and peace and joy. Myriads and myriads of Christ followers experience this. And this is the abundant life that our Lord talks about wanting for you to experience the peace that comes from his rule and his reign and your cognizance of it. But of course, it's not just peace in our hearts. We have peace with God. The great the great existential threat to a sinful humanity is the fact that God is there and he does not let sin go. And that great looming foreboding day of judgment is for you, brother and sister, gone. Because no longer do you fear the terrifying judgment of the Lord Rather, you wait for the welcome home embrace of your father. That is the truest peace. And then, to top it off, like the nice cherry on top of that wonderful Sunday, we have all the promises of a renewed earth when the effects and the consequences of sin are gone. And each of us images our Lord in perfect righteousness and holiness. And our Lord dwells with us on earth. It will be awesome. So let this grand vision that the Lord gives you, that in Christ we have even now begun to experience, let it shore up your faith. Let it shore up your strength. Indeed, let it reinvigorate your soul as you face all the hardships of the now. They are part of the plan, but so too is the great day 
of your deliverance at the hands of the ruler from Bethlehem. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage, for the hope that it brings. We thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who has conquered by dying and has pronounced and announced his victory by rising from the grave. Thank you for giving us the great inheritance that comes from being adopted as your sons, which is to say the brothers, the younger brothers of our Lord Jesus. Thank you. We ask that you indeed would encourage us and by your spirit stir up our faith and faithfulness that we might be found ready and vigilant upon his return. We ask this in Christ's mighty name. Amen.